This message this evening is really the second half of last week's message, which was an introduction to the letter. But the week before last, as I was going through those opening verses of Philippians and then made a brief survey of all the notes that I had jotted down, it became quite apparent fairly quickly that there was far too much for a single sermon, so it got chopped in half. And I didn't say so last week, but actually... Uh, last week was introduction part one, and really this is introduction part two. And it was interesting that, as you know, I was at the uh, the Banner Ministers Conference this last week, and very very helpful time of fellowship and teaching. And um, interestingly, uh, one of the points that was emphasised and really struck home was that when you read through the Bible you often come across little details and you think, what on earth is that there for? But it's always there for something. We believe, don't we, that the Bible is God-breathed. It's His Word. And if He's put those little details there, He's put them there for a reason. He put them there for a purpose. And... It kind of just encouraged me because I'm focusing on some of the tiny little details that ordinarily we might just gloss over and think, well, there's nothing really more to be learned from that and let's move on. Sometimes in the Bible we can move on far too quickly because you haven't really paused to consider what we've just read. And so for want of a title, sometimes... I'm asked, what was the title for that message? I actually find one of the biggest burdens sometimes is thinking of a title. It's quite a recent thing, I think, that I think the internet's got a lot to do with it. Sermons have to have titles. Well, if I'm going to call this anything, I'm going to call it the not-so-obvious. Because there's a number of things I'm going to talk about which maybe are not so obvious. We're still in verse 1. But I trust that as we look at some of these little details that God has seen fit to record for us in his word that we'll be greatly helped and encouraged together this evening. Well, in our introduction so far, we've looked at some of the things that are mentioned in those opening verses. And this evening, we're going to look at three more. And then, uh, God willing, we'll make a little bit more progress through the letter next week. Well, we looked at Paul and what we didn't look at at all last week was the other man who's mentioned in there, Timothy. Some of you know about Timothy, but perhaps some of you don't. Well, we, we read from Acts chapter 16, those opening verses where Paul recruits Timothy onto his mission team. Uh, and we read there that uh, Paul comes to the, the region of Derby and Lystra and there is this disciple called Timothy there. He has... Uh, a Jewish mum, but a Greek father. And the fact that he has a Greek father wouldn't go down too well with some of the Jewish men. But it says that he's well spoken of by the brethren. When Paul writes to the Philippian church, we saw in chapter 2, he says to them, you know of this man's reputation. You've heard about his proven character as a Christian. What a wonderful thing for the apostle to be able to write about any Christian man or woman. 
Uh, what a wonderful thing, surely, for us to want people to be able to say of us, not out of any egotistical sense, but just that we might be living a life that is useful and proven and honouring to the Lord. A good reputation. And Paul wants him to go on. Uh, we presume that Timothy and his mum were converted during or following Paul's visit on his first missionary journey. And we see, if you read on through the book of Acts from chapter 16 onwards, you see that Timothy quickly becomes a very integral part of Paul's team. Even though he was a comparatively young man, which Paul refers to in the first letter that he wrote to him, well, at least the first one that we have recorded in the New Testament scriptures. Just how young Timothy was, well, we don't know, but seemingly a comparatively young man. If you have a look into 1 Corinthians 4 and also into 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you see there that Paul considers him to be a mature Christian, an able and faithful teacher of the faith. He was sent to the church in Corinth to minister to them. That was a difficult situation to go into. It was certainly no place for a novice. And it was certainly no place for one who was not grounded in the faith. In six of Paul's other letters, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, the 2 Thessalonian letters and Philemon, Paul includes Timothy in his opening salutation, just like he does in his letter to the Philippians. Timothy was regularly at Paul's side. What a wonderful thing it is to have someone at your side and someone like Timothy at your side. We know from other things Paul says elsewhere, the great struggle it was at times when he was alone. What a joy for him to have someone at his side. What a, what a great ministry Timothy had, even in that. And of the 13 letters of Paul that are recorded in the scriptures for us, Timothy appears in 10 of them. So he really is a very prominent man and a significant man in the founding of the early church, the establishing of the early church, the encouragement of churches. And as we saw in chapter 2 of uh, Philippians, uh, Paul says he's going to send Timothy because he has no one else like him. The first person who comes to mind, who, who can I send who will do the Philippians good? Timothy. He's the one. And he's confident that they've heard of Timothy's proven reputation and character. So that's who Timothy is. And you'll find similar things repeated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 concerning Timothy's ministry amongst the Lord's people there. A mark of both Paul's esteem for this young man and of his future hopes and expectations of him is that it is to Timothy that he writes on key themes of pastoral ministry in the two letters which bear Timothy's name and as information and guidance and God-inspired counsel and wisdom in those letters, uh, which you won't really find in other parts of the New Testament that are of great help and importance 
for Christian churches even today, including, of course, uh, the guidelines and qualifications for elders and deacons in churches, which is a subject we'll come on to uh, shortly. And in the first letter of Timothy that we have in the Bible, Paul addresses him as a true son in the faith. They really are, they're spiritually, they're like father and son. They're inseparable. The bond between these two men runs strong and it runs deep. A great example to us of uh, discipling younger men in the faith, a great example of how an older Christian man can take a younger Christian man under his wing, as it were, train him and have this great bond in Christ with him. And so from what we know of Timothy, and we know a lot more about Timothy than we do of many of the other people that are mentioned in the New Testament, we have in this young man a great example for any Christian man or woman. He actively serves amongst the local churches. He has a good character, proven reputation. He's faithful. He's reliable. He encourages. He cares. He has integrity. He himself is growing in Christian character and graces. And I very much get the impression that when Paul first came across him, Timothy wasn't jumping up and down saying, me, me, choose me. He just stood out because of who he was. His character shouted out to Paul, choose him. But Timothy himself had no such ambitions that we can see. Paul sees in Timothy what he has to offer in the future because of how he's living now. It's a great example for each one of us. Now you might have hopes and dreams for the future, but it's how you're living now that's important. Are you living well for Christ today? That's the key. Are you serving Christ faithfully today? And the extent to which Timothy is devoted and committed to Christ the extent to which Timothy is devoted and committed to the proclamation of the gospel is seen very evidently in those opening verses of Acts chapter 16 in that Timothy permits Paul to circumcise him. Now when you think of what Paul teaches about circumcision, have a look in places like uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians and Galatians Paul teaches there, if, if you are a Gentile man who comes to faith in Christ, there is absolutely no need for any Gentile to be circumcised when they come to faith. It serves no purpose whatsoever. I'm sure Timothy knew that. But it speaks even more highly about Timothy's character and about his commitment to Christ and his commitment to the spread of the gospel. Why did he allow Paul to circumcise him when Paul taught that it wasn't necessary? Was Timothy mad? No. 
simply so that his not being circumcised would not be a barrier to the gospel when speaking to Jewish men. They would be offended and find it very difficult to accept or to speak to an uncircumcised man whose father was a Greek. So to remove that offence, and for no other reason that we can find in Scripture, Timothy allows Paul to take a blade to his flesh. Now I'm very thankful that up to now the Lord has not required such an extreme thing of me. But how far would you be prepared to go? How far are you prepared to go? How far am I prepared to go? Just to remove a potential cause of offence that might hinder the gospel. I suppose really it comes down to this. What is the level of your love for Christ? What is the level of my love for Christ? What is the level of your burden for the lost? What is the level of my burden for the lost? I have a few reservations about using terms like heroes of the faith. But if you wanted a hero of the faith, aside from looking to men like Paul, if you're looking for an exemplary Christian example to follow, Timothy's your man. Let's pray for more Timothys. Pray that each one of us, male or female, would be a Timothy. The church needs Timothys. The world needs Timothys. Let's pray that we might be such. And then secondly, in this introduction, Paul addresses all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. All the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. One of the most important aspects of considering how a Christian ought to live is first of all to remember what a Christian is. We cannot look at a man like Timothy, therefore, and simply say to ourselves, right, I'm going to be like that. To do that is to completely disregard the basis by which Timothy himself was like that. The word saints, interestingly, is always found in the plural. It's always used to speak of, uh, collectively of the Lord's people in a particular location, just as we see it used here. And it's a word which is not used to speak about a special or particular group of Christians. It's not used to speak about a special category of Christians. All the saints means literally all the believers, all the, all the followers of Christ, all the Christians who are in Philippi. It's a word which is used to address those who belong to Christ. These saints live in Philippi and they live alongside other citizens in the town. And as such, there will be many things that they share in common with every other resident of the city. But at the same time, there are things about these people which are distinct and unique because they are saints. Their residency in Philippi is not the most important thing about them. 
and it's not the most distinctive thing about them. Even though, as we saw last week, there are certain great blessings and privileges of being a citizen of this town. But that's not the main thing which identifies them or marks them out. That they are in Philippi is a secondary issue to something far, far more important, which is that they are in Christ Jesus. They have been savingly united to Christ by his grace. They're those who've repented of their sins and they've turned to Christ in faith. They've acknowledged the Lord Jesus to be the only Son of God incarnate. God become man, Emmanuel, God with us. And that same Jesus went to the cross to pay in full the penalty for their sins. It's what they believed and they trusted in. That Christ stood in their place at Calvary for forgiveness. Their hope of eternal life is in his death and resurrection. And this risen living saviour reigns supreme in their own lives. And now they're not their own. We saw that last week. We're all slaves of Christ. They belong to him. And as such, in that city, they are saints, which means they've been set apart by God, to God and for God. Now, this is one definition and one important aspect of the word holy. And many commentators point us as an example through to, in Old Testament days, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple in Jerusalem, there were many items and implements and utensils that were consecrated to be used just in that place for the worship of God. They would be used exclusively by the priests in the administering of all the ceremonies of sacrifice and worship in the tabernacle and the temple. They, those items, bowls, dishes, cups, all kinds of things, they were set apart just for that. They were never used for anything else. And in that sense, they were considered to be holy because they were exclusively for the use of the priests in, in the worship of God. They were not to be defiled by using them for anything else. And this is the Christian as one who's in Christ. You are his exclusively set apart by him for his service, each one of you. Known, named, called by the Lord to be his and to serve him. And so although these believers are in Philippi, there is much of Philippi that is no longer in them. There are things of normal Philippian life which they have now turned away from. And they've renounced so that they can live obedient and godly and Christ-like lives. There will be aspects of civil and social life in Philippi. There would be aspects of religious belief and practice which they can no longer support, which they can no longer be part of, which they can no longer be associated with. And as Paul wrote to the Galatian church, he spoke of Jesus who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. That doesn't mean that we're completely removed from it. They were still in Philippi, but they've been delivered from certain things about Philippian life. 
And no doubt there will be times when they experience the kinds of things that Peter wrote about in his first letter. And we read about it in, in chapter 4 there, uh, where Peter talked, he talks about the kinds of things that Christians can expect to happen, about Christ suffering for us in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That's what it is, you see, to be a saint. You're, you're called out from that. You're set apart to God. We've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. He goes on and mentions some things in regard to these. They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. What's, what's Paul describing there? He's describing saints. Called out ones, set apart ones, holy ones, because they're in Christ. They were still in Philippi. You are still in Liverpool. But spiritually and morally and ethically, you've been taken out of the world's evil and corruption and placed into Jesus. You're traveling a different path now. You're heading in a new direction now. You have a new nature, a new mind. You have a new master and saviour. Our church, just like the Philippian church, is made up of all kinds of people from all kinds of places, just like we saw last week. But they're joined together in unity with this common goal and purpose. How does that happen? Because each one is in Christ. Each one is a saint set apart. They, just like you, faced all kinds of difficulties and opposition, confronted by all manner of fears and temptations. But above all of that, they, like you, are in Christ. Here is our true identity and definition. This is true of every Christian believer. You cannot be more of a saint. You cannot be less of a saint. You either are or you are not. Are you a saint in Christ? This is the work that God has done in you. It's the new position that God has placed you into. In this simple little word is the antidote to a whole raft of worries and anxieties that can flood in on the Christian. Too easily we can lose sight of the extent of the work that God has done when he brings us to faith in Christ. We forget the position that we're in. Whenever you feel challenged by the scriptures, perhaps you, you can see the things in your life which are not yet as they should be. Or perhaps you're rebuked by the scriptures because you suddenly realize there are things in your life that ought not to be there at all. But we come back to this, you're a saint in Christ. Liverpool, your street, your school, your place of work, your local shops, in the public park with your children, at the school gate, in the staff canteen. 
We need to let Liverpool see and know that in this city there are the saints of Christ. Would you be a Timothy? Recognize prayerfully before the Lord that he has set you aside to himself. And finally, we see that all of these saints are part of a local church. I mentioned this morning that I'd be saying a little about the local church. We don't have much time. I can only be very brief. But Paul says, all the saints in Christ in Philippi. He's addressing every single Christian. And he also goes on to mention bishops and deacons with the bishops and deacons. Uh, For bishop, you could use the word overseer. You could also exchange it for the word elder, if you're more familiar with that term. It really is the same kind of thing. You see, things have moved on since those days by the river with Lydia. Things have moved on since that day when the jailer was convinced of his need for Christ and they were all baptised, those who believed, and formed that fledgling church in Philippi. Amongst these saints are those who've been set aside from amongst them to serve as elders and to serve as deacons. Uh, You might even think of a bishop as a superintendent, even. Paul expects that all the saints will be members of that church over which these elders rule and amongst whom these deacons serve. You see, being a member of a local church is normative in the Bible. Being under the oversight of elders is normative for a Christian in the Bible. Now, I know, as I acknowledged this morning, there are those who think that people like me and churches like ours make a little bit too much of church membership. And that the way we operate church membership, well, frankly, some people think it's a bit over the top. And some might even argue that it's not found in the Bible anyway. Well, let me respond just briefly on a few things. You read through the New Testament scriptures and you'll discover that being part of a local church is everywhere. How are elders to rule if those who are to be ruled are not known or cannot be identified? How are the teachings of Jesus and the apostles regarding church discipline to be administered? If we do not know who it is, we are to discipline. Regarding discipline, Jesus said, take it to the church. Who is the church if we don't know who the members are? In 1 John, we saw how John spoke of those who went out from us. How how do we know they were in in the first place? The writer to the Hebrews exhorted them not to forsake the gathering of themselves together. The clear implication is that the Christian is associated with a regular, identifiable gathering of believers and you're part of that church. There are times in the New Testament when churches made decisions together, like the whole church agreeing with the elders to send out Paul and Barnabas. 
with the agreement of the whole church. How do you know it's the whole church? Well, you know who's supposed to be there because you know who's in the church. When the Bible names individuals whose homes were used, it, it speaks of the church that meets in their house. 1 Corinthians 16 is an example. Aquila and Priscilla, they greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And who was the church in their house? Just whoever might happen to stroll in Sunday by Sunday? No, it's a, it's a known gathering, a known company of believers who, who are joined in fellowship together in a local church. Why do we sometimes restrict things to church members? Well, because if you're going to play an active part in the church, if you're going to represent the church, you can't do it willy-nilly or haphazardly. The church is too important for that. And neither can the church give the impression that church membership is a light or, or superficial thing that you can take or leave or step into and duck out of as the fancy takes you. It's too important for that. And the constitution, some people turn up their noses at that word. Maybe, the, maybe we need a better word. But the constitution that churches like ours write down, what are they there for? Well, they, they work simply to provide a clear unambiguous, agreed structure and framework by which all these biblical principles can be established and maintained. The church is not to be a place of confusion or uncertainty or ambiguity. Things are to be done decently, consistently and in an orderly manner and that's where the constitution comes in. And so... We see in Philippi that which is normative. All the saints in that town with their elders and deacons. Why? Because they are a local church. That is Christ's pattern for his people. There's only one example you can point to in the New Testament where someone who got saved didn't obviously become a member of a local church and that's the, the Ethiopian eunuch who Philip met out in the desert who was on his way home to Africa. Being part of a local church is where all the saints are meant to be. Well, what can we see from the not-so-obvious in a single verse. Well, we see the example of Timothy. Will you be a Timothy? Well spoken of in the church. Are you a saint in Christ? Set apart for him. Are you a member of a local church if you are a Christian? If you're not, then why not? And, uh, well, I'm delighted to know there have been a few people in the last few weeks who've made known their interest in becoming a member of this church because they know that's the biblical pattern and they want to follow it. 
And um, I'll be starting to speak. So with the other elders, we'll be beginning to speak to them about that soon. What about you? Maybe you're not yet a, a member of this church. But let me ex exhort you and encourage you. It's where Christians are meant to be. It's a place of great blessing. It's a, a place of responsibility. But a place of great blessing. It's Christ's pattern for his people. That they, they be an integral part of a local church. Here is a place where you can be with the saints in Christ Jesus in Liverpool where Christ, the head of his church, wants you to be and serve to his glory.